for the first time in New Zealand this week. And like many of you, last night I watched as the votes were counted and the results started coming in. And a few weeks ago, I mailed in my ballot for the United States election. And in a couple of weeks, when the results of the presidential election start to come in, I admit I'll be a qu quite a bit more anxious then than I was last night waiting for the New Zealand results. My first time voting in New Zealand was pleasant and easy. I work at the university, so I just had to walk downstairs to the polls. I got to go in the special voting line, which ended up sounding a bit more special than it actually was. But everyone was smiling, no one was rushing, pleasantries were exchanged, and I felt like my vote was appreciated. My husband's first time voting in the States, Phil, my husband's name is Phil, was a bit of a different story. There was one day to vote in person, so the lines were long. People had to take off work, they were grumpy. Everyone was in a hurry. And when we were in line behind a talkative man, he shared how unfortunate it was that people like my husband, Phil, were allowed to vote when they weren't born in the United States. A very different, quite unfortunate experience. I will say, though, that it ended on a high note because at every polling place, there's always students selling cookies, and we always happily support them. Now, politics and religion in America are interesting. And maybe other nations have similar conversations about the relationship between the two, but America just seems louder in their discussion about religion and how it fits with politics. And of course, as an American myself, I've been exposed to it quite a bit. And it all sort of comes spilling out in an election year like this one. This tension around the conversation is due in part to this old idea that America is somehow supposed to be, or at least perhaps started out as, a Christian nation. On the back of every money note or coin in the United States, the words, in God we trust, is printed. And it's used as a reminder to many and an argument for some that we were once a Christian nation and it is therefore an insult to God and to Christianity when something in society doesn't align with that understanding of someone's religion. Now, I realize that this is a simplistic account, that there's a lot of gray area here, and we could go in many different directions from this conversation. But what I find interesting is that in a passage such as the one we just heard from Matthew this morning, it's as if, it's as if Jesus generally did not seem that bothered by instances of pagan practice or a thoroughly secular mindset. He doesn't appear to be insulted by the emperor's ruling or openly idolatrous ways. Now, we're not quite sure what the inscription was on the coin that Jesus was given, but we can be sure it probably wasn't in God we trust. 
It was likely an inference to the idea that Caesar was Lord, ruler of all things. And yet Jesus didn't throw the coin or shout out blasphemy like we would imagine any of us might do if our leader claimed to be God or Lord of all things. But Jesus also doesn't roll his eyes and dismiss the concern altogether. He took this opportunity to convey some pretty profound truths. Now, Jesus understood this to be a trap. They wanted him to overreact, to say something against the emperor, so that then they could get Jesus in trouble. But that wasn't the message that Jesus wanted to convey here. So he held up the coin and he said, Whose face and whose inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's, or the emperor's in this morning's translation. And Jesus said, So give back to the emperor what is the emperor's, and to God what is God's. Now, of course, we can read that in many different inflections, in many different ways. We can say it angrily. We can say it compassionately. We can say it with apathy. But the words stand. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. The response Jesus gives seems too easy. And it also seems to be too quickly accepted. If I was there, I would certainly have follow-up questions for Jesus after this statement. But I suppose when you know that the whole world and everything in it belongs to God, and when you know that above all the human heart belongs to the creator God who created things in his own image, then even the big, bright, loud realities of this world become distractions and sideshows. They do not ultimately touch God. They don't threaten God. Jesus responds as if he's saying, remember that God is still ever and only God and no human power can dislodge, displace, or challenge God's claim on our hearts and on this world that God created. Getting all excited about the powers that be and becoming hyper-focused on them tempts us to downplay, to underestimate the glorious sovereignty of God. But now for a word of caution. By no means do I think Jesus is telling us not to worry about politics, not to get involved, not to participate in change. We know that Jesus was very involved in creating a movement, showing us an alternate way to live. And he calls us to be active in that same movement. We're not called to be stagnant in our faith, but to be active. But Jesus is reminding us here to also be confident, to not fall into these traps of thinking we need to choose between worldly and godly ways, because there is just one way. There is just one God who is ruler and creator of all things. So when we get offended on behalf of God, when society claims a truth that seems contradictory to God's truth, Jesus says, none of this comes close to touching God. God is ruler of all things, and there is nothing that can offend or take away from that. 
It's as if Jesus is warning us against this natural inclination of staring at a problem or an issue, becoming overwhelmed with a particular issue, and then glancing towards God, wondering, God, when are you going to do something about this issue that has overcome us and overwhelmed us? Anytime now, God, help us out with this issue. Jesus is saying, that's not the way to do it. We should be up here. We should be focusing on God, knowing that God will reveal to us how we need to participate in these issues. We're looking at God, wondering what the role is going to be, instead of looking at God, knowing that God will reveal the role. There is just one God. There is just one way, and Jesus is reminding us to look towards that and don't get distracted by all of this. The Psalm 96 passage that we opened the service with this morning in our call to worship echoes this reminder, this reminder that there are many gods, but one outshines them all. And as verse 5 reminds us, these gods aren't actually gods, but idols, distractions. These issues, these world leaders are idols, not gods. And we are called to imitate the one God, not these other idols. For this true God is creator God and nothing else compares. And in response to this truth, the psalm reminds its listeners to act, to sing, to bless, to tell, to declare. The psalm does not ask its listeners to wait passively for the establishment of justice on earth. The series of imperatives throughout the psalm, all in the plural, demand that everyone acts. And the inclusion of all throughout the psalm, all the people, all the families, all the nations, and indeed the heavens, the seas, the fields, the trees, reminds listeners of how bound together creation is. Together the psalmist says, we should hope, even in the face of misery, celebrate, but also work together. Sing a new song, the psalm says at the start. It says it three times. Sing a new song. Dream of something new and better. Innovate. Create with God. Participate in making new things with God. There's an action that's being encouraged here. Ascribe to God glory and strength. See this in what God has created. Everything we read in the psalm tells us to look toward God. Don't be distracted by all these other little G gods, but stay focused on the capital G God. This is the God worthy of our worship, no others. This one and true God who sent us his son Jesus for us to imitate a living of a new way. That's the God. Now, like I said, I have three children. And they do a lot of learning through imitating me and my husband, Phil. And usually it's sweet, like we're watching our one-year-old continually wave and learn how to blow kisses. It's sweet when we hear Lila, 
our five-year-old, echo our voice when talking to baby Nora. Or when Micah, the oldest, helps Lila find her favorite show on the tablet like we have so many times. Or when we overhear Lila singing one of, the fav one of my favorite worship songs that I have been unconsciously singing aloud. Or when we hear Micah prayer, pray, noticing that he's using the same words and the same language that we use when we pray. <laughs> 